0: We're going to look at Psalm 140. It's a psalm written by King David, and I'm going to read it to you. David writes the words to this psalm, and he says this, Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me from violent people who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's, The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent who devise ways to trip my feet up. The arrogant have hidden a snare for me. They've spread out the cords of their net, and they've set traps for me all along the path. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Hear me, Lord, hear my cry for mercy. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, you shield my head in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires, Lord. Do not let their plans succeed. Those who surround me proudly rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. May burning coals fall on them, that they may be thrown into the fire, into miry pits. Never! to arise again. May slanderers not be established in the land, may disaster hunt them down. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and uphold, uh, and, and you will uphold the upright in your presence. Amen. What these Psalms do, each one of them, is that we have them in our Bible today because they broadcast, they magnify human need. In actual fact, David and other Psalmists wrote lots more Psalms than the ones we have. There are Bibles in the world, um, for instance, um, uh, some of the Orthodox Bibles that have more Psalms than we've got, so we don't have them all. There are different Bibles in the world. i I guess some of you have heard me say that before. But when we say, I believe the Bible, there's an interesting thing in, in, even on itself. Because the Protestant Bible is different from the Catholic Bible. And the Catholic Bible is different from the Orthodox Bible. And various Orthodox Bibles are of different lengths to each other. Because, in actual fact, what's happened through the years is, as people have followed Jesus have collected and collated the Bible together. There's been massive agreement about what should be the core of this, but at the edges, there's a bit of disagreement. And we have 150 psalms to choose from, and this is the 140th. And each of these songs, because they were songs, we've got the words left, but we've lost the tunes. Each of these songs is there because it, in some way, broadcasts what is something to do with our humanity, commonly with our humanity. There's an old story that's told, and it's about a native Indian, a Cherokee. And uh, this old Cherokee sat with his grandson. He was wise, and he was withered. And his grandson was young. And his grandson said to him... Um, said to him, what truths have you got to teach me, grandfather? And the old man thought about it. And then he said this, my son, there's a battle between the two wolves inside of us all. Wolves were a threat to the Cherokee Indians. There's a battle between the two wolves inside of us all. One is evil. It's anger, jealousy, resentment, inferiority, lies and ego. The other is good. It's joy, peace, love, hope, humility, kindness. It's truth. The boy thought about what his grandfather had just said to him. And then he asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? The old man replied quietly, the one that you feed. The one that you feed wins. This psalm, this psalm of David begins in this way. Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me. From the violent, those who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent. David wrote this psalm, we know, when he was young. You can tell actually, even if you don't take that at face value, that that's when he wrote it, just from these words. If you know the story of David, when he was young, he was hunted down by Saul, who was at that time the king. Power had gone to Saul's head, he'd become autocratic, he didn't listen to the people. And he didn't listen to God. He did whatever he wanted. He saw David as a threat. David, you remember, was very popular with the people. Remember the episode of David and Goliath, this young man who'd slain this uh, leader, this iconic leader of the Philistine people as they were oppressing uh, the Jews. David had become extremely popular. He was like an Olympic hero hero. Everybody loved him and Saul resented that. He was scared of that and if you read the story in the books of Samuel about the way in which Saul reacted to David's popularity and the fact that David was popularly believed to be the person who would replace him as the next king, Saul gets jealous and his ego takes over And he hunts David down. He tries to take his life on several times. He tries to assassinate, to murder David. And it's in that situation that we know David wrote this psalm. He's a young man scared being hunted down by an evil king. Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. It wasn't just Saul. It was his entire army, his elite squad that were trying to wipe David off the face of the earth. Protect me from the violent who devise evil plans, lots of plans, lots of attempts on his life in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. It was all about deception, if you read. Saul told the wrong story about David to have people come over to his side, his camp. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from uh, the violent. But here's the twist. A few verses later, I've just read this to you. David says this. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violence. Here's a quote from someone not often quoted in churches, Nietzsche. Nietzsche said this, Whoever fights monsters should see to it that the process, that in the process, He does not become a monster. Nietzsche gets a very bad press, if you don't mind me saying. Um, I'm not recommending that you read whole sections of Nietzsche, which is quite complicated. But Nietzsche's gone down in history as Hitler's mentor, do you know, and, and Nazism as the result of Nietzsche's teaching. And he's also gone down in history as the man who said God is dead. Well, actually, that is to absolutely misquote Nietzsche altogether. Uh, I'll give you that quote. Uh, Nietzsche said this. He said, God is dead. God is dead. And we have killed him. Woe is us. For now, and this isn't to quote him exactly. This is now. It's just the thought. Once you kill God, you are left without a lawgiver. Once God is gone, there is no restraint on humanity. We have killed God's. That's what he actually said. And Nietzsche's work was taken and twisted and misunderstood, in my view, by Hitler completely. I'm not holding Nietzsche up to be a saint. I'm I'm not. But I'm saying that I think he said some things that were true. And I think this is one of them. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. I um, showed... um, a couple of American friends with Cornelia last weekend along the South Bank, and we got to the Globe Theatre. And uh, as we got to the Globe Theatre, the American guy that we were with, George, he started reciting lines from various uh, Shakespearean plays. He loved Shakespeare. They just stood outside the Globe and said, Is this it? Is this where, where Shakespeare was? And uh, as he was talking, it reminded me again, actually, about the only Shakespearean um, play that I ever studied at school, which was Macbeth. I'm not a great um, scholar when it comes to Shakespearean plays, but I do know this about Macbeth. It's actually called, its official title is The Tragedy of Macbeth. And the tragedy of Macbeth uh, is this. By the way, do you know that, uh, I explained this to George, he didn't know this, that James I, the king, was the patron of Shakespeare's theatre company. And uh, if you read between the lines of many Shakespearean plays, you can see that um, the official line is being peddled. In much the same way as the archers was used by the government after the Second World War to push out farming policy, James I became patron of Shakespeare's theatre company in order to push out some messages that he wanted to get across to his good citizens. And Macbeth is a fine example of exactly that, the tragedy of Macbeth. Macbeth starts, as some of you will know, as a wonderful, brave, upright, moral soldier. Uh, He's an officer. Uh, He's an officer in the Scottish Army. He's a general, in fact. But he gets a prophecy from a group of witches, the witches of Endor. And the witches tell him that one day he will become the king of Scotland. He goes to his wife, Lady Macbeth, and he's upstanding, he's outright, he wants to serve his country, he wants to do what's right, he's through and through a guy who, who works for others and serves the king. But he goes to his wife and he tells his wife what the witches have said to him and his wife can't wait to be queen. And slowly, what unpacks over uh, the remainder of the play, as many of you will know, is that he becomes consumed by ambition. And this is spurred into action by his wife who's looking for a bigger pay packet. (laughs) I guess. And in the end, Mac- Macbeth murders the King of Scotland, King Duncan, and he takes the throne for himself. And you may think that's the end of the story, but remember it's James I that's paying for this. It's James I that's putting out the message. And Macbeth becomes racked by guilt and eventually paranoia because of what he's done. And therefore he hears all sorts of whispers and he becomes very suspicious and he engages in a system in the systematic murder of anyone who he su- suspects might know the truth and stand in his way as one murder follows another the next murder has to come the further he goes down this route the more suspicion is created and the more tyrannical he becomes And the end of the story, why it's called The Tragedy of Macbeth, is the story ends with a bloodbath and a consequent civil war that take Macbeth and his wife into the realms of madness and eventually their own deaths. The plot for the play in some ways picks up some of the threads of the story of David. Because David starts out as someone who wants to serve. Rescue me from evildoers, Lord. And he has this message that we've just seen. May burning coals fall on them who seek to betray me. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. That's where he starts. Pretty unforgiving and pretty black and white. But he starts in this place where he wants to do what's right. Things go wrong for David. As he gets more power, as he becomes king... He comes to believe that he can have anything he wants. And I don't need to rehearse with you the story of David and the prophet Nathan and the woman called Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. Because David, now king, now in power, one day sees Bathsheba, who is very beautiful and is married to Uriah, bathing naked on a rooftop. And he desires her and he orders people to go get her and bring her to him. And she comes and he has sex with her and she becomes pregnant. And once she's become pregnant, David wonders what to do about this. So he decides to cover it all up. And he gets Uriah back from the war and he invites Uriah to go home for the night and in days before DNA testing was readily available, he believes that they'll sleep together and then it will all be passed off as a pregnancy within their marriage. But Uriah is loyal to him and won't go home and won't do this thing and David becomes more and more panicky. He's got to cover this thing up. So in the end, he sends Uriah back to the front line and he says to Joel, who's his chief of staff, put him right in the most dangerous place on the front line and ensure that he dies in battle. And Uriah does die in battle and then David marries Bathsheba and the child is born. The reality is But once David starts traveling that route, he has to do more and more and more to cover himself and his story. It's a strange thing, isn't it? We say that David committed adultery. He didn't really commit adultery. I suppose technically it was. It was a one-day stand. It was a one-afternoon stand. It was sex, and that's all it was, gratuitous sex, because that's what he wanted But it was more than that. We don't know that Bathsheba was willing in this. So it was sexual harassment as well. And it may have even been rape. It was sexual harassment and it was rape. But then he has to cover the whole thing up. And so he invents this whole conspiracy. And this conspiracy thing is all about deception. And eventually it's about murder as well. David's sins are adultery, sexual harassment, possibly rape, deception, and murder. At that point, Nathan, the prophet, comes and exposes what he's done. He doesn't confess, he doesn't own up, he keeps it quiet, but Nathan knows and Nathan comes, and David writes a different psalm. And it begins in this way Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. If you compare that to some... 140. It's extraordinary. In Psalm 140, David is saying, blot out the evildoers. Wipe them out. Don't let them possess the land. Send them down into the miry pits. There is no forgiveness and no help for them. Rescue me, Lord, from what they're trying to do to me because I'm innocent, but punish them forever. Here the years have gone past and now he's in a position where he is the transgressor. Have mercy on me, Lord, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash them away. You know I'm a good guy. He goes on to say in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Wash me white as, as snow. Forgive me and I'll serve you. Here is a middle of a story that, about Jesus. It's from John's Gospel, chapter 8. And it's when a woman was brought to Jesus by some Pharisees and she'd been caught committing adultery with a man. They only brought the woman. The man was not brought. So that's who they are. They were trying to trap him, Jesus, into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. Is she guilty? So he stood up again and he said, all right. But let no one but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. They wanted to stone her to death because of what she'd done, she'd been caught committing adultery. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And then there's verse nine, I've made it bigger. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd power they say corrupts and perhaps that was David's problem he started off right and power corrupted him, and then he became this despotic ruler who wanted anything that, uh, who, who had to have anything that he wanted. Power corrupts. The young are idealistic, but age makes you complacent. That's one way of reading this whole story, isn't it? David, rescue me, Lord, keep me safe because I'm your man. Punish the evildoers. But later on in power, he's complacent and he's corrupt. The young are idealistic, but age makes you complacent. I'd put it to you, though, that this story is not about that. It's about something else. When the accusers listened to what Jesus said, the one of you who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, they slipped away, beginning with the oldest. Certainly, my experience of walking with Jesus over these years is. The older I get, the more I know that I'm only in this by God's grace. I am not the kind of person who should be leading a church. I'm not the kind of person you probably think I am. I'm not the kind of person whose life's kind of all together and etc. I am the kind of person who struggles like you. And I think that what I have learned over the years is not to cast the first stone because if I cast the first stone, there's a whole load of them that really deserve to be lobbed right back at me. I am one of the oldest who would slip away in the crowd for I would would not seek to condemn. I have learned that there's a big difference between my best moments and my worst moments. I've learned that if I'm judged by my worst moments, I'm done and I'm finished. And I'm looking out at you and I know you're all in the same boat. I know you're the kind of people who, like me, don't want your thoughts and your week's life broadcast on this screen. We are not those who we claim to be. And rather than believing that David, when he wrote Psalm 140, and he said, rescue me from these evil doers and send those terrible evil doers down into hell and give them the worst time. Actually, I believe that what happened to David over the years is he made many mistakes, not just the one with Bathsheba. And he came to believe something different about life, that we're all broken, that we're all scarred, that actually we're dependent on people's forgiveness of us every day of our lives. Here's a quote from um, a Bulgarian uh, philosopher whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. But um, I, uh, I read this just the other week. He's a sociologist philosopher. He's still alive. He's 77. People who believe themselves to be the incarnation of good have a distorted view of the world. I think that's a particular danger with Christians. and A particular danger, actually, with evangelical Christians who believe they know what's right about everything, who have a moral viewpoint on absolutely everything, which conveniently always includes their behavior, but normally excludes other people's behavior or beliefs. I believe that that's a cult in the end, in the end, what is a cult? A cult is a group of people who believe in a number of things that put them in the right and put everybody else outside the camp and possibly and probably in danger of God's judgment and hell. I believe that that's a cult. Rather, I believe it's our task in life to walk humbly with God in recognition of our own failings and stumblings, and extend to others mercy, which isn't to turn a blind eye to what's wrong. Over these last two weeks, I've been on jury service at the Old Bailey, and I've listened to a story of huge complexity, and I realize that people fail and fail badly and deceive. And I'm not suggesting for one minute we create a society where we do not see wrong and sin for what it is. But I am suggesting that we create a society that is willing to find ways of forgiveness and working forward with people. Pope Francis put it like this, only when we come to understand in the light of the, uh, in the, light of the cross the evil we are capable of and have even become part of can we experience true remorse and true repentance? In my job, and with this I'm going to finish and leave us with a little bit of time to think, you can't believe, or perhaps you can, my job in leadership of Oasis, with thousands of, so I'm not talking about here, I'm talking about thousands of people working for Oasis. The percentage of time in my job that is taken just rebuilding relationships that have broken. I don't mean just with staff. I mean schools around the country and parents and volunteers. The amount of time, if you take out of my week, I reckon on any week it's probably 50% of my time that's just spent sitting down saying... Well, I'm not sure he meant that when he he wrote that. And I'm not sure she meant that. And perhaps we can see a different way. And perhaps he's not quite as stupid as you think he is. And perhaps actually you should be listening to what she has to say. And it all comes from a place that believes I am right and everybody else is wrong. In David's second psalm, Psalm 51, rather conflicting, confusingly because it comes before Psalm 140 he goes on to say I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and only you Lord he's saying have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. An old Cherokee told his grandson, My son, there's a battle Within you, between the wolves. One is evil, it's anger, jealousy, resentment, inferiority, lies, and ego. The other wolf is good. It is joy and peace and love and hope and humility and kindness and truth. The boy thought about it and then asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? The old man replied gently, The one you feed. Let's pray. In our prayers this morning, as we come to the conclusion of our service, perhaps you want to look at those words on the screen from Psalm 151. Perhaps you don't. But here's a moment to bring to God our confession. Think about this last week. Situations you've found yourself in. The conversations you've found yourself in. The stuff you've found yourself watching. Researching. The thoughts you've had. The actions that you've planned. Recognise again. That we are all dependent on God's forgiveness. Which wolf wins? The wolf we feed. Lord, we want to be formed inwardly by your love, by your joy, by your peace. We want to be hopeful people. We want to walk in humility. We want to live out kindness and generosity. Our goal is to be truthful. We want to be transparent. Forgive us for our stumblings and our mistakes. Forgive us for the times when we allow our sense of inferiority to come out fighting and lying instead of truthfully. Forgive us for the times when our jealousy or our resentment, our wanting the best seat or the best place has taken over Forgive us for the times when we've given way to selfish desires which have caused us to behave in destructive ways to others. Help us this week to walk in joy and peace and love and hope and kindness and truth. And as you bring your sins to God, your failings, your transgressions. Know this that God cleanses us, He makes us clean, He washes you. And though your sins are scarlet, forgiven, you're as white as snow. So, in this moment, receive God's forgiveness. and renew your commitment to serve him.